Everyone has their reasons for liking MMA, and no one reason is more valid than another. You like what you like. However, one of the main things that attracted me to the sport was right there in its name, Mixed. The concept on which MMA was built, style versus style, is endlessly fascinating. And even though it's less prevalent as the sport continues to become more homogenous, most still enter the cage with a game plan and a strength. And as a result, we can usually predict each fighter's route to victory even if we can't accurately foresee the outcome. But of course, sometimes it just doesn't work out how it should. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and here are the 10 most unlikely finishes in MMA history. Number 10. Anthony Pettis vs Charles Oliveira when Anthony Pettis and Charles Oliveira met in 2016, they were both at a crossroads. Showtime was out of luck at lightweight and decided to try to find some success 10 pounds south, whereas Dubronx would soon be told he needed to relocate up to the division Pettis was escaping. You see, while he successfully made weight here, he'd miss it badly the next time, weighing in 10 pounds too heavy, and as a result, the Pettis fight would be his last at 145. It would also incidentally give Showtime one of his best aged victories ever. Oliveira was a jiu-jitsu phenom ever since he joined the UFC. He began training at 12 and was awarded his black belt by George Patino and Erickson Cardozo 10 years later after submitting Eric Wisely with a calf slicer. He then repaid them with five strangulations in his next six victories. But Pettis, to his credit, was no dunce on the ground either. Although not a black belt yet, he did get that spectacular armbar against then-champion Benson Henderson. The chances of him catching Charles was slim, yet that's exactly what he did. In a competitive fight, Oliveira got an ostensibly crucial takedown in the third, and from there he'd secure side control and almost took the back, but in a rare lapse of judgment, he went body triangle instead of hooks, allowing Pettis to get on top before a reversal landed Oliveira in Pettis' guillotine, forcing the black belt to tap out. Number 9. Anthony Hernandez vs Rodolfo Vieira So here are some of Rodolfo Vieira's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu accomplishments. Four first-place divisional finishes and a one-time absolute division victory at the Mundials, aka the most prestigious BJJ competition known to man. Three-time winner at the UAE JJF Abu Dhabi World Pro, where he also conquered the absolute division twice. Top honours at the IBJJF PANS Championship, as well as their European Open and victory at the ADCC World Championships in 2015, which would mark the end of his jiu-jitsu run. At least for now, anyway. Now, here are Anthony Hernandez's jiu-jitsu exploits. Mm, nothing. Oh, man. Still, despite that and the fact that no ADCC champion has been tapped in the UFC since 2011 when Frank Mir tapped Roberto Traven, Hernandez shocked the MMA world at UFC 258, guillotining Vieira, the man ironically known as the Black Belt Hunter. Granted, there were some caveats. Firstly, MMA isn't sport, jiu-jitsu and strikes change things, and secondly, you can't dismiss that Vieira was absolutely exhausted by the end of the first round. Nevertheless, don't take anything away from Hernandez. That was an extraordinary feat, and he surely got that stripe on his purple belt. I hope I got that first stripe on that purple belt, man. Make quit fucking playing with me, Jim. Number 8. Khalil Roundtree Jr. vs. Gokan Saki 
When Gokan Saki signed with the UFC in 2017, there was little doubt it was an experiment of sorts. He had only tried MMA once back in 2004 and it was pretty much by accident. Answering a call from his kickboxing coach, he accepted a fight for later that day, only to find out that it was an MMA bout, not kickboxing when he arrived. He fought anyway, although it didn't actually go his way. He'd returned to kickboxing and quickly made a name for himself with a combination of technique, power and especially speed. And by the time he set his sight back to MMA, signing with the UFC, he was 83-12-1 with 59 knockouts in kickboxing. His debut then came in Japan where he dazzled, sleeping Henrique da Silva with a blistering left hook. That's not to say his performance was perfect though, fatigue was unquestionably an issue, particularly in the final two minutes of the round, the ones that don't exist in a three-minute round kickboxing contest, although once the rebel landed clean, it was too much. He drew Khalil Roundtree next and, like De Silva, it didn't seem like a particularly tough matchup. Roundtree wasn't terribly experienced but was notoriously inconsistent. He also liked to strike, yet if he did that against Saki, the former glory light heavyweight champion, there could only be one winner. Right? Nope. Roundtree, in a kickboxing match, countered a low kick and dropped Saki with a left straight before finishing him off with strikes on the ground. Number 7. Randy Couture vs Chuck Liddell A week shy of 40 and on a two-fight losing streak, having brutally lost to two relatively modern heavyweights in Josh Barnett and Rico Rodriguez, it wouldn't have been crazy to suggest that Randy Couture was a relic heading into 2003. But when the narrative opened up for him to prove that wrong at light heavyweight, of course, Captain America was ready. Chuck Liddell, who was the top contender at 205 for what felt like an eternity, was slated to challenge the champ Tito Ortiz at UFC 43. But there was a problem. Ortiz, who had allegedly been ducking Chuck for years, turned it down, claiming that his friendship with Liddell was worth more than the paycheck. The Iceman disagreed, but with Ortiz playing hardball, a spot opened up for somebody to meet Chuck for an interim title. Hmm, who could it be? Enter. Randy Couture. It was a massive opportunity, absolutely. Couture could become the first two-division world champion. But in truth, it seemed like a nightmare matchup for him. Like Barnett and Rodriguez, Liddell was a modern fighter. But what's more is that he had an approach designed to counter guys like Couture by using his wrestling in reverse to facilitate striking opportunities. Wrestlers fighting Liddell habitually transformed into sitting ducks and that was the expectation for UFC 43. But Couture wasn't done evolving. He outclassed the Iceman on the feet, doubling up on his strike count and leaving Chuck flustered and resorting to unsuccessful takedown attempts. Eventually, Randy punched his way into the clinch, drove Liddell down to the mat, easily took Mount and finished him by ground and pound. Number 6. TJ Dillashaw vs Henan Burrell there were actually a few parallels between this fight and the Couture vs Liddell upset. Like Randy, TJ Dillashaw wasn't the UFC's first choice for a title fight. They were forced to manufacture a short-notice headliner for UFC 173 when its main event fell out. Their original plan, however, was for Rafael Asuncao to challenge the 135-pound champ Henan Burrell, but when injuries prevented Asuncao from taking the fight, TJ got the call. Dillashaw, while certainly one for the future, was very 
very much a work in progress at the time, and the prevailing sentiment was that Burrell, who was riding an incredible 32 fight unbeaten streak, was far too much in the present. Plus, like Chuck, Burrell's style, which mirrored many of his Nova and Yao teammates, was decidedly effective against wrestlers like Dillashaw, as evidenced by his wins over Uriah Faber. But here's the thing, a lot was changing at Team Alpha Male. While Faber was still considered the best they could offer, nobody had transformed like TJ had under their new, albeit short-lived, striking coach Dwayne Ludwig. But it wasn't until Dillashaw mopped the floor with Burrell that everybody realized just how much he had evolved. Despite Dana White calling Burrell the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world leading in, TJ dominated. But not on the ground. He devastated Barrow on the feet for five rounds until the referee was forced to stop the mauling. Number 5. Forrest Griffin vs Mauricio Shogun Hua If you find any historical light heavyweight rankings from 2007, you'll notice that they all share one thing in common, and it's that despite Quinton Rampage Jackson, the then UFC light heavyweight champion, enjoying the best spell of his career, Mauricio Shogun Hua was listed as number 1. It made sense though when you consider what Hua had accomplished. At 23, he stopped Rampage in the opening round of the 2005 Pride Middleweight Grand Prix, and it wasn't competitive. He'd then go on to win the tournament, beating Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira, Alistair Overeem, and Ricardo Arona. Known primarily for his ferocious striking, he was an excellent grappler too, despite just having one submission win on his resume. On the flip side, if you refer back to those rankings, Shogun's first UFC dance partner, Forrest Griffin, wasn't anywhere to be found. He wasn't a bad fighter by any means, but the biggest compliment you could pay him was that he was a tough out who was pretty good everywhere, but not necessarily a master of anything. As a result, the consensus was it was Shogun's fight to lose. The only question was whether or not Griffin could survive to hear the judges' scorecards. That didn't happen. Forrest outclassed Shogun, arguably winning every round, but instead of cruising to a decision with top position in the final round, he rallied, took Hua's back, and choked him out for not only an improbable finish, but a win that earned him a title fight and subsequently one of the most unlikely championship wins in company history. Number 4. Mike Rousseau vs Todd Duffy The rule of thumb for heavyweight is anybody can knock out anybody and anybody can get knocked out. It's a simple function of physiology. Still, a true knockout just doesn't appear to be on the cards for some fighters regardless of weight class. Think Ben Askren and Roxanne Motteferi. And for me, Mike Rousseau felt nicely into this category back in the day. He was a hard-nosed, gritty wrestler with submission skills, but not much striking, which is probably why he matched up against Todd Duffy in the first place. You see, Duffy was 6-0 with 6 knockouts, and only one guy had made it to the second round. Three didn't even make it to 20 seconds, including his last opponent, Tim Haig, who he finished in seven. So clearly, Duffy needed a test, and with his specific set of skills, maybe Rousseau could be it, if he could survive. But when Duffy dropped him in less than 40 seconds on the clock, that looked like a pipe dream. Even when Rousseau survived, he just couldn't buy a takedown and was completely outmatched standing. Still, despite breaking his left arm in the opening round, he somehow made it to the third, although it didn't seem to matter. Duffy was miles ahead and Brousseau would need a miracle, which he got. Out of nowhere, a right hand cracked Duffy, putting him out cold, before Russo finished him off with the tamest hammer fist ever, reminding us why he's not a striker. 
Number 3. Joe Lozon vs Jens Pulver The UFC rarely does tune up fights, and that was true even back in 2006, but for Jens Pulver's return, which was massive considering the state of the lightweight division, they put together a flagrant tune-up, or should I say, they thought they did. He was pitted against Joe Lozon, an unknown making his promotional debut. It was unquestionably supposed to be a gimme, a fight to catapult Jens towards the title. Remember, Pulver was the champion when he left in 2002 and the division never recovered. The promotion tried with a title fight between BJ Penn and Carl Uno, two guys Pulver had beaten, but when they fought to a draw, the UFC effectively neglected the division until 2006 when they moved to salvage it. Pulver was of course re-signed, but the promotion also scheduled a title fight for UFC 64, which saw Sean Shirk beat Kenny Florian to become the first 155-pound champion since Jens vacated. Pulver's return fight was also smartly placed on the UFC 63 card just weeks before Shirk's title victory and a prime position for Little Evil to be introduced as the next contender. But it wasn't to be. Lozon, known only for his ground game, was given zero chance standing by Joe Rogan on commentary, but shocked the world, stopping Pulver by strikes in just 48 seconds. Lozon would subsequently appear on Tough as a cast member, a season Jen served as a coach, all but confirming that Lozon was never supposed to win. And if you're still unconvinced, Lozon even verified it on Reddit. Number 2. Matt Sarah vs. Georges St. Pierre Matt Serra's road to a UFC title was as novel as it gets. Having gone 4-4 four four in the promotion, he was offered a spot on the Ultimate Fighter 4, The Comeback, a season featuring a cast that had fought in the UFC but failed to make any inroads. The show would feature middleweights and welterweights with the winners earning a title shot. Serra, along with fellow grappler Travis Luter, ultimately prevailed in the finale, which went down just a week before Georges St. Pierre regained the 170-pound belt, knocking out Matt Hughes and setting up one of the most unlikely UFC title fights ever versus Sarah. St. Pierre at 13 and 1 was a phenom, good at pretty much everything except promos. Not impressed by your performance. And he had not only beaten Hughes, avenging his only loss, but also Sean Shirk, Frank Trigg, Carl Parisian, and BJ Penn, the latter two of whom had already beaten Sarah. The only perceivable upside for the New Yorker, who was a black belt in jiu-jitsu under Henzo Gracie, was that GSP's only loss came by way of submission. But even that would have been shocking given St. Pierre's improvements since then and his size advantage. Nevertheless, that would have been nothing compared to what actually happened. Matt Sarah TKOing GSP in the first round, forcing George to tap. Number 1. Gabriel Gonzaga vs. Mirko Krokop was there any doubt this would be number one? It'd be list-making malpractice if it wasn't, and for good reason. Gabriel Gonzaga knocking out Mirko Krokop by head kick of all things really is MMA's ultimate twist. It's our I see dead people's reveal, and that's not just because Gonzaga bodied Krokop. Surely you know the story, but for those who don't, 
Here's a quick primer. Prokop was a striker renowned for his kicks. They were basically his not-so-secret weapons, helping him win countless accolades including the 2006 Pride Openweight Grand Prix, his crowning achievement as a mixed martial artist. Gonzaga, being a heavyweight, was blessed with some inherent power, but he was no striker. He was a grappler by trade, so one would assume that success would come as a consequence of those skills. Although against Krokop, even that was a long shot given Mirko's ability and experienced fighting guys are sensibly far better than Gonzaga, who, with just eight pro fights, was still new to the game. But Gonzaga decided to flip the script that night, landing a head kick which put Krokop out cold. It was a finish Mirko would have been proud of if he wasn't on the devastating end of it. Thank you to the writer of today's video, Rob Palin. You can follow him on Twitter at TheRobertPallin. And a big shout out to Lotten the Casual Veerkant for editing today's video and you really should follow him at Lotten underscore Veerkant on Twitter. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.